from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. So when I was a teenager, my mom came to me and said, I have a way for you to pay for college. I said, fantastic. That's Heidi Schreck, an actor and writer who grew up in the 1970s and 80s in a little town in Washington state. And uh, she told me about this speech contest called the American Legion Oratory Contest. And I loved public speaking at the time. I loved debate. I was on the debate team. Uh, So I agreed to do this contest where I would travel the country giving speeches about the Constitution at American Legion halls all over, mostly all over the, the Northwest and Pacific Northwest. Heidi Schreck has turned that experience into a play in which she stars that's about to open on Broadway. It's called What the Constitution Means to Me. In the show, she toggles between her teenage self in those competitions and herself today, digging deep into the Bill of Rights and her own family's generations of trouble. I saw the play off-Broadway a little while ago and was totally charmed by Shrek's performance and improbable play. Here is a bit of it, her describing a memory from when she was in college as it relates to Roe v. Wade. You know, actually, um, Jean and I went to see my grandma Betty on the way to get my abortion, and I remember I wanted to tell her what I was doing because I thought she might be excited for me. My uh, my great-grandma, Bricken, had had uh, 18 children. My grandma Betty had six children and a violent husband. My aunt had two children by rape, and I thought she might be excited I was getting to do something different with my life. But after the way my mom reacted, I did not feel like a good teller. I remember I, I almost did it. She made us these beautiful popovers. I sat down at the breakfast table with her, and I, um, I almost said, Grandma Betty, I'm pregnant. And instead, I said, Grandma Betty, I miss George, which is, I just, I actually don't even know where it came from. George was this sock monkey that she sewed for me when I was three years old. <laughs> and her mother is in the play as well. Yes. That was part of the germinal idea of this play, right? That all of these generations of women <laughs> would be in it. Because why? Well, I started with the prompt that was given to me as a teenager, which is, can you draw a personal connection between your own life and the Constitution? So I didn't actually begin with the four generations of women. I began with myself, and I just started very plainly saying, like, okay, what what constitutional decisions have affected my life the most? And, of course, I got pretty quickly to reproductive rights and to Roe v. Wade, and then while researching that and realizing that those were all located in the Amendment 14, Section 1, and the Ninth Amendment, the right to privacy, I, in doing my research, realized that um, almost all the decisions having to do with women's bodies had been made with the help of these two amendments. And then I thought, well, if I'm going to talk about what's personally affected my life, a huge part of my life has been this legacy of domestic violence in my family that I grew up knowing about and obviously affected my uh, mom very deeply and affected my understanding of what it means to be a woman in this culture. And so I decided I would just keep following the prompt as far as it could go. And that took me back 
four generations. Um, so in the play, uh, you keep coming back to this constitutional idea of a penumbra. Yes. Um, your first mention concerns arguments before the Supreme Court about the Ninth Amendment. Yeah, it's my favorite. Which, again, I would suspect that 99 point something percent of Americans would not be able to say what the Ninth Amendment is. Yes. I want to play a bit of you performing that right. penumbra talk. <laughs> Justice William O. Douglas, the great Supreme Court justice, when he talked about Amendment 9, he used the word penumbra. What is a penumbra? Well, gentlemen, <laughs> here I am standing in the light and there you are sitting in the darkness and this space between us, this space right here of partial illumination, this shadowy space, this is a penumbra. It was, it's, it's beautiful. I, I, and, of course, I was, you know, a little bit familiar with the William O. Douglas penumbra thing. But suddenly you're making it more than just, just the, the constitutional idea of penumbra. I mean, I love the Ninth Amendment because it says that we have unenumerated rights, right? It says that there are rights that we have that are not listed in the Constitution and that those rights are as real as the rights that are laid down. And I just, I find that wonderfully um, mysterious for a document that's so... Uh, going to be, it's supposed concrete. to be the rule book. Exactly, the rule book. Uh, I also, on a just a human level, find the idea that there is the Ninth Amendment, this uh, penumbra, that within this sort of shadowy space are all all the rights we don't know we have yet. And and for me, I just found it a very um, compelling image, thinking about being a 15-year-old girl and not knowing yet what my rights were or what I was entitled to or who I was or um, what I could claim as my life. Uh, that, that So the Ninth Amendment felt related to what it feels like or felt like for me to be a 15-year-old girl. And then I think as a country, we're trying to understand, like, what are... What are these rights that we haven't enumerated in the Constitution? Like, who are the groups of people that this Constitution has failed to actively protect? And can we look to this Ninth Amendment? Can we look to this uh, mysterious space and say, you know, what I see in these shadows is uh, we we need to protect this group of people. We need to protect people on the basis of sex and of gender and uh, I mean, obviously, they, they did this. They used the Ninth Amendment to, you know, win reproductive rights for women. They've used it in all sorts of things. That cases, was part of Roe v. Wade. It was part of Roe v. Wade. It originally started with Griswold versus Connecticut. Which um, is about contraception. Which is about contraception, yes. So I just, I found it, I also just honestly, to be uh, frank, I, I like how weird it is. It's a really weird amendment. Well, and, and, <laughs> and nobody, one, one could yeah. imagine, too, that taken the wrong way, like— let's say, not legalizing contraception or abortion. Like, if you can start, like, imagining things in the penumbra, that's a slippery slope that could, could work, could go the wrong way. No, I mean, many people are mistrustful of it. Lawyers are mistrustful of it, and I respect that. I'm not a lawyer. I'm a writer and a you play you know, one dramatist. You on television. A, yeah, yeah, sort of. <laughs> so for me, it's the most poetic of the yeah, amendments. But yeah. I understand why it doesn't make for good a good foundation in terms of, like, a Supreme Court case. Right. Uh, which is why, in fact— it's been a problem for, for women's reproductive rights because we're locating our reproductive rights in this Ninth Amendment, in this right to privacy, which is not 
enumerated ever. Um, so it's this kind of hazy right that we're not sure we have uh, instead of uh, rooting it in, say, equal protection under the law, saying that you can't have, uh, you know, you're not equal uh, in the society if you don't have bodily autonomy, if you don't have the right to say uh, whether to have children or not. Um, that would have been, many, many scholars believe, that would have been a, a more firm foundation for Griswold versus Connecticut and Roe versus Wade. You sound like a lawyer to me. Thanks. <laughs> um, so you've been working on this play and workshopping it and then performing it as Donald Trump has become president. Has that fact and what he says and what he tweets and what his the policies of his administration are made you change the play in any way? I haven't changed the play um, in, in response to what's happening. Uh, I first performed... The, this full version of the play that you saw in 2015. So Obama was president. I, I think the audience received some of it differently, clearly. Uh, also, different sections become more electrifying depending on what's going on at, at any given time. Um, right. It's like, I remember we were doing the show this fall, uh, and on the day that the AP had reported that Trump wanted to get rid of birthright citizenship, uh, which, of course, he... He would not be able Meaning to that, do. Meaning that children of immigrants born here would not automatically be citizens. Exactly, which is uh, in the 14th Amendment, uh, Section 1. Uh, I, I recite that clause as part of my contest, as my 15-year-old self does. And that day, the whole audience applauded and cheered for the clause. Um, and things like that have been happening throughout the run. So in addition to being a successful actor and a successful playwright, you are also a pretty successful television writer as well. Yes. You've written for Nurse Jackie and Billions on Showtime and also for Jill Soloway's I Love Dick, which was on Amazon. It's set in Marfa, Texas, about this married woman who's obsessed with the fictional local lord of the manor, an artist named Dick, played by Kevin Bacon. I want to play a scene from an episode of that show that oh. you wrote. This is Catherine Hahn and Griffin Dunn. Uh, smoking a joint and and discussing marriage. <laughs> oh boy, wouldn't it be so awesome if you could just experience? If you could just go f have sex with anybody that you want, just don't just go f and just know mm -hmm. that I'm not going to be mad. Yeah. That I, in, in fact, when you come home, I will just, I'll ask you how it went. I would come home. You'd be holding a rolling pin. Shut <laughs> up! I a rolling pin in my whole fucking life. <laughs> What are you talking so about? Jealous. F fine, I would you be would. jealous, and that's just a feeling that I would have, and then then I would just get over that feeling. Uh-huh. What if we just walked the walk? Okay. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> what if we walked the walk? If we walked the walk. Because we could be like John and Yoko. Rita and Diego. <laughs> we could be like. <laughs> we could be like. Sid and Nancy. <laughs> he killed her. He killed her. What is so romantic? <laughs> I thought that she tripped. Uh, wow, this is a surprise. You've just surprised me with this. Um, most of that was written by me, but Griffin and Catherine, you know, added in there. I don't think I wrote the ro the rolling pin. 
<laughs> it was funny. That... Beautiful set piece, but yeah. was it meant to do something? We have to have this happen in this this episode in order for the series to go here. I just really wanted to make sure before they embarked on this relationship with Dick, with the Kevin Bacon character, that we felt invested in their marriage and that we also saw the tenderness and humor and deep connection. Because we've seen a lot of bickering and and, and disconnection before. Yeah. I think that that was my goal, particularly with this episode, was like, can we feel the goodness of this marriage before we we take a turn? So if you could choose... Five years from now, ten years from now, uh, you're going to be more of the actor, Heidi Schreck, or more of the writer, Heidi Schreck? My guess, more of the writer. I made a decision to focus primarily on writing um, about five years ago. Throughout my whole adulthood, I've been doing both, but... um, I feel now that I'm getting older, there there are a lot of things I want to make and write and create and a lot of things I want to say and explore. And I think that for me, writing feels like the right way to do that. What the Constitution Means to Me by and starring the great Heidi Schreck begins performances on Broadway March 14th. Coming up. Since we had known each other since we were kids, there was that shared vision. The advantages and challenges of making a movie with your sibling. If we weren't related, we would definitely get divorced and, like, leave and, you know. Or, like... or we'd have just killed each other. <laughs> Filmmakers Jonathan and Alain Bogarin on their new documentary, 306 Hollywood. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. Are you scared of dying? Oh, no. Oh, no, never. I'm not scared of dying at all. Our grandmother was like a remarkable, unremarkable person. We filmed her about once a year for 10 years. At 86 years of age, I think I'm very fortunate I've lived so long. No. Uh, Sometimes I think it would be a relief. Then it starts to transform. When we found these tapes of our grandmother, we saw that she was talking about an entire life. It's uh, getting uh, difficult, uh, uh, taking care of uh, the medication and uh, being alone. And uh, at times I do fear. And then as the years passed, we started to realize, wait a minute, she's a great character, and maybe it's a way other people eventually might want to speak with her, too. Those are the filmmakers Elan and Jonathan Bogarin, sister and brother, talking about their grandmother, Annette Untel, who was a dressmaker in New Jersey and died in 2011. Their new documentary about her and her life and her home and family is called 306 Hollywood, which was the address of the house where she lived for almost 70 years. The film is an homage to Annette and the eras in which she lived, featuring lots of old family home videos like the one you heard there before, but also a lot of strange, wonderful new scenes that make this unlike any other documentary I've seen. The filmmakers call it magical realism. It uses the language of mythology and fairy tales to talk about big life transitions. In this case, our grandmother passed away after living in the same house for 70 years, and we inherited her house and the tens of thousands of objects inside. So we basically make a fantasy film about the magical experiences you have going through someone's life and excavating 100 years in one 
junk-filled house. Um, and we use the languages of visual art, of fiction film, of literature, of dance, of music. And we kind of mix it into a documentary in a totally different way. The reason we were inspired by using, you know, magical realism and myth is that you build out this world where it's like, wait a minute, why can't that be considered part of how we see something that's true? Because it's how it subjectively was felt. And that's what we wanted to do is mix those together yeah. and then make it where the audience could then see their own lives and their own families in it, too. Well, and given what we now know about memories and how variable and fungible and often not entirely true they are, I mean, it... it it makes sense that why not make them fantastical a little bit? Um, your your grandmother left what, and I'm sure we don't even see all of it in this film. This awesome collection of of uh, mid century artifacts, and, and if she hadn't been, as she called herself, a pack rat, you couldn't have made this film, right? If it was just like, oh yeah, grandma has a couple of scrapbooks and that's it, th- this would not exist. Right. The artifacts themselves were the source of everything. And the tapes of her were among those artifacts. Right? We had audio cassettes that we found of her from the 70s. We had the tapes that we made in the 2000s. And then we had toothbrushes that spanned decades. We had typography that spanned 100 years. Uh, we found piles of paper clips across the century. There's all these things that seem to have no meaning. And then through the transformative quality of art, we basically were able to find meaning. And it kind of sent us on our path and kind of sent us on our right. journey. No, I see that. And 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 her lingerie and her vacuum cleaners and then more vacuum cleaners. And, and seeing these almost vitrines of objects, like in an archaeological museum, there, there's something humorous about it. But wait, we all are we do have these collections of stuff that reveal us to the world, and in this case, to posterity, right? When you have a person, you have the person. You can touch them. You can talk to them. And then once they're gone, you had a grandma, and now you have their stuff. And it, it seems almost absurd that I could have this person that means everything, and then it just sort of boils down to something like a toothbrush of like, well, what time did that come from, and what decisions led to that, and what was that? And as crazy as it is, this is what's left. Yeah. And because she was around long enough, there there's this, uh, you know, time capsule aspect of, oh, look, the, the 80s, oh, the 60s, oh, the 40s, all of this stuff. It is like a little... Uh, you know, museum exhibition, right? right. And, and this is part of the way that we thought about it as something very small and something very big. You know, so we, we're thinking about this idea as we made the film that a house is a universe, that it's a very small place. You can kind of like trace the footprint of it on the ground, but it also is an entire world. One person's life seems very limited, but it's also like an endless library. So we, we started actually referencing all these different ways that people have displayed the past and represented the past. So we, we studied natural history museums. We studied ancient archaeological sites. We studied our Catholic reliquaries. We studied libraries and archives and also began speaking to the people from those different places to get their opinions and how they keep the history of the past. Yeah, and, that, and that's talking to these actual conservators and uh, archivists and stuff is, is interesting. And I felt as though it, it kept this hugely, profoundly sentimental project from going too deep down the purely sentimental rabbit hole? Was that your intention? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, for us, we always wanted to take one life and use it as an example. You know, even though, of course, we, you know, adored our grandmother and this was meant to be about her, it was never solely to say we're creating this memory of her. It was about to say she's this amazing character and let's use her to represent all these bigger stories. So when we spoke with archaeologists and physicists and fashion conservators and archivists and, you know, funeral directors, it was always to bring the bigger themes into the film and then 
then connect it to the individual so that we could have that bigger conversation. Yeah. So your your grandmother worked as a as a dressmaker, a custom dressmaker, designing and sewing dresses for well-to-do New York women. And, and sometimes, if she had enough fabric left over, she would make a matching one uh, for herself as well. There's a scene from the film, Elan, where you and your mother and your grandmother are looking through this remarkable collection of dresses that she made from the 50s and 60s, and, and you ask her to squeeze into one of them uh, that she'd made decades ago. And your grandmother, bless her, uh, humors you, uh, stripping down to her underwear on camera. Here, here's a clip from that scene. Now, first we'll take your top off. Because you're getting your hair done tomorrow anyway. I'll, I'll help you. Don't worry. It's not a big deal. We just want to... You know what it is, Ma? All no, she's not hesitating to do this. She was a complete collaborator. No, but it could get over your shoulders. If you sit down, if we do it like this. No, right? It's so little, Ma. Let's think how we would do it. You don't think maybe you could step in that? If we could take your pants off. Oh, look at this with these shoes. Should I take my pants off? Well, no. If you're going to take your pants off, you have to take them off first. Let's try to take them off first. And then... Oh, this is crazy. It's not crazy, but It is. It's not that <laughs> and, and it goes on, and she gets... She strips some more and, <laughs> and puts on a different dress. Um, it, it is intimate and revealing and charming, but I was I couldn't help but think, like, man... What is what? What would she think if she knew this was going to be in movie theaters? I mean, again, she was a hundred percent on board with every bit of this. Really? Oh yeah. That even with that, we had been filming her for seven years by the time we did this, and then you can see eventually she's like, "Should I take my pants off?" At first she's like, "This is crazy," and then she's like, "I'm going to take my pants off," and we we're like, "We must include this," and the reason is it's the moment in the film where she looks at her own life. You see the dynamic among three generations, and she looks at her own life and she sees, I'm getting older. This is where I am. This is where I was. This is where I am. And she looks at herself right in the face, and she like deals with it. And you see it. You see it happening right in front of you. This is such uh, uh, an idiosyncratic movie in the best way, which made me curious uh, to hear about your various cinematic influences. And you've provided a list of, of some of them. First, Busby Berkeley, the, the guy synonymous with giant song and dance movies from the 30s and 40s, such as this one, which is Gold Diggers of 1933, choreographed by Busby Berkeley and directed by Mervyn Leroy. And since there's no dialogue in this scene, what do we see happening? We see a beautiful shot from above of maybe a few dozen women who are dancing in and out as if they're like a big flower that's sort of expanding and contracting. And there's a woman in the middle playing a violin. It's a very elaborate and dreamlike scene. Now the violin is glowing. It's magical. It's beautiful. It's, it's you know, it's hard to, to look away when you see something like that. And I think that, as you said, to mix that into a documentary, it changes how you see what's in front of you. So we wanted to bring that visual style. And then we also could tell the audience, get lost in this world. It's not how you think it should be. It's not the ordinary space that you're you're used to. So the what I take to be the most Busby Berkeley-esque sequence in the film is... The scene where all the where these half dozen women in in your grandmother's dresses are are dancing on the lawn, right? 
right? Is that that that's where Busby Berkeley comes into that, this? That would be the part. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and and really, the the thing is, when you watch a Busby Berkeley film, you know you're in Hollywood because you yeah. can tell it's a set. Everything is so clearly done up. There's camera angles that are impossible, and you know what kind of world you're in, even though it's a fantastical world. What we wanted to do is we wanted to apply that to something that felt completely real. So you already knew these dresses. You know, we had a, a clothing conservator had come to the house. She had done an autopsy on the dresses. You'd seen our grandmother try on the dresses. And now suddenly the, the conservator says, I can imagine the dresses alive. And here it is. So right now we're seeing models wearing all of our grandmother's dresses. They're now posing on the lawn with different domestic objects. It's like a dream sequence for Mad Men. That's exactly right. They're vacuuming the lawn, looking through old books, through a magnifying glass, unzipping each other's dresses, which leads us to... And these are actually the dresses. These are actually the dresses. dresses. And those are also... So now we have these women. They're dancing in the girdles, which are exact copies of the girdles that our grandmother had. And it basically represents the difference of here is what she looked like. This is sort of her world of her youth when she wore those dresses, which is, is... a definite contrast with where she is for most of the film. And, and it's still in the front yard of this tiny little modest yes, house in, sure. in Hillside, exactly. New Jersey. And, and you can see the cars are passing by. There's a neighbor. He's like doing some yard work next door. What did the neighbors in little Hillside, New Jersey, this middle-class suburban town, think of uh, think what's going on? The neighbors loved it. They loved all of this. I mean, we sort of had our fan club of, of the neighbors around. And, you know, when we actually shot the dancers, um, people would come out with their lawn chairs and sit on the other side of the street and check the whole thing out. They loved it. Yeah, it was entertainment. Uh, some of your influences that you've mentioned are not from films uh, like Joan Didion, the great uh, journalist and novelist and screenwriter. Uh, here is a uh, bit of uh, her reading from a few years ago uh, from her book about the death of her partner and husband, uh, John Gregory Dunn, The Year of Magical Thinking. I realize as I write this that I do not want to finish this account, nor did I want to finish the year. The craziness is receding, but no clarity is taking its place. I look for resolution and find none. Um, that's A Year of Magical Thinking, Joan Didion. Uh For my money, Joan Didion has influenced every creative person since her. Uh, How how do you feel that she works into this film as an influence? I mean, I think she did such a beautiful job of looking at all all the journeys your mind travels through after you lose someone. You know, I think as much as we wanted to explore all the ways you can sort of bring something to life, you know, the the crux of it is we're dealing with grief, you know, and we're dealing with the fact that grief teaches you a new way to understand the world. It teaches you a new way to approach your reality. And she nailed it. I mean, she dives into the, of course, the sadness, but also sort of the ways in which your brain tries to grapple with something that's incomprehensible. And she tries to settle on sort of the the facts of it, but also all the surreality and the difficulty and the challenge of it. And that was such a brilliant way of dealing with something that affects all of us that, of course, that was going to be a, a, a true influence. Yeah. So your brother and sister, what was that like to work together on such an intense, long, serious project? It sounds kind of risky. So making this film was sort of an act of faith in a lot of ways because we didn't exactly know how to do it. So you had to have someone who would 
travel that path with you and believe in it long enough and believe in something that was abstract and kind of hard to pitch and kind of hard to state and kind of hard to understand. Since we had known each other since we were kids and since we knew each other's sensibilities for literally our entire lives, there was that shared vision. And it's like we would fight things out until we saw something the same way. Was there a time when you just like you had a huge argument about some idea that somebody wanted to do and the other one didn't? I mean, we fought all the time. Yeah. I mean, this this was— I want the dirty specifics. No, no, no. I mean, there was definitely times where you recognize, like, if we weren't related, we would definitely get divorced and, like, leave and, you know— and, Or, or, like, or we'd have just killed each or, other. Or, like, killed yeah. each other, yeah. you know. But it just it just one of these things where um, we fight in order to make the idea better, yeah. you know. And it's, it's basically best idea definitely wins. Sure. I, I think also it's like— when you talk about siblings, it tends to be brothers. It's always like that these brothers are those brothers. And like we're siblings, we're like a man and a woman, you know, and a brother and a sister. So it's like that was also really important. Like we wanted to figure out a way to have kind of like a male, female, like intergenerational, like multicultural view in the film that even though it's about a 93-year-old Jewish lady, it's got a lot of different voices. And we wanted to find a way to balance that all out too. Yeah. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that, of the, yes, all these these brother team filmmaking uh, pairs. Here, here you are. Uh, mixed gender sibling uh, filmmakers. Elan uh, and Jonathan Bogarin. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you so much. 306 Hollywood is available now on iTunes. And on March 18th, you can watch it for free on PBS on the show POV. There's a decent chance that some of those ladies for whom Grandma Annette was making dresses 50 and 60 years ago bought their white fish and chocolate babka from a certain New York institution. Russ and Daughters, founded on the Lower East Side of Manhattan more than a century ago. The great-granddaughter of its founder is Nikki Russ Fetterman. I was probably five or six, and I would jump on top of the sacks of onions and potatoes, and the delivery guy would wheel me into the kitchen, and I somehow thought that I was performing, you know, very important work. But Nikki's parents encouraged her to get a good education and make a life for herself away from the family business. I went to Amherst College, and I studied political science. Then after college, I jumped around from one profession to the next. I worked in the art world. I worked in health research. I taught yoga. And nothing ever stuck. There was always this thing in the back of my mind of of Russ and Daughters. But selling food, smelling like smoked fish at the end of the day, those are not the things that I felt um, that I was educated to do. Around this time, two friends of mine were hosting an event called Klezmer Brunch at a music club called Tonic. Klezmer Brunch brought together young Klezmer musicians to play, and also um, there was food. And so these friends of mine would stop by Russ and Daughters, pick up bagels and locks, and so I ended up joining them. Tonic was housed in an old uh, winery where they would make kosher wine. And um, upstairs was the event space where there was a stage and it was kind of dark and slightly, you know, slightly grungy. And the music was just so lively. My 
mean, it was a hip crowd. There were these cute girls playing the accordion and these good-looking guys who were playing clarinet or singing. And I saw these people who could have been brought up to be doctors or lawyers or engineers or what have you, and yet they were choosing to be musicians, to have the, the chutzpah, the will, to do something different. They were fusing the old school in a way with the new school, adding their own twist to it. And that made it a, a very powerful, revelatory experience for me. There's a Yiddish word, yichis, which means lineage. And I looked at sort of what it meant to be the fourth generation of a tradition. And I looked at what Russ and Daughters meant, to, not just to myself, but to so many New Yorkers, to so many people who had some connection to, to this city or to being Jewish or just loving food. And what would happen if Russ and Daughters wasn't there? I realized that I had to become a little less selfish and offer myself to a real opportunity. So we can't tempt you with some herring? Well, there's always, you know, basil, bialis. Now I am co-proprietor of Russ and Daughters, Russ and, Daughters. and the fourth generation of the family to continue the business. Yes. That's the Swedish Lexan. Have you had the smoked salmon tartare before? It's all running beautifully. We're so happy this season with the caviar, yeah. This is a picture of the store in, in the 30s. You can see that's my great-grandfather behind the register. So I'm still wearing like the same white coat that he wore. Yeah, she's much too young. Much too young? I know, still in training, right? <laughs> Yet, even after I had decided to come into the business, I certainly had my doubts. There were a lot of days where, you know, after you're working six days a week, 10 hours a day, you smell like smoked fish. I certainly wondered if this was really the right thing. It was certainly taking a toll. So I was, I was having my struggles with the business. I was also trying to plan my wedding. And through the store, I had become friendly with John Zorn, the pioneering downtown musician whose work is influenced by klezmer and Jewish music, but he also really pushes the envelope in every other direction. And one day John and I were talking in the store. He was buying his whitefish and his bialis, and he asked me how the wedding plans were coming along and whether I had secured any musicians. And I said no, to which he replied that he would play. And there is a slight melancholy to the sound and kind of wailing, you hear that. And yet it, it, I think, affirms the life experience. And for me, having this music at my wedding, I mean, yes, it's a joyful moment of union and it's celebratory. At the same time, you're sort of acknowledging that 
that life is, you know, life is messy. To have that music present was so affirming, and I felt walking down that aisle that, yes, I've made the right decision. I've, I'm marrying the right guy, and I'm doing the work that I was, was meant to do. That's Nikki Russ Fetterman of Russ and Daughters, which just opened a new store in Brooklyn's high-tech, hipster-ridden Navy Yard. Our story was produced by Jenny Lawton. Russ and Daughters is practically a, a New York icon. Speaking of which, a request. Studio 360's American Icon series has explored dozens of important and influential works of literature, music, film, architecture, design, all kinds of visual art. Now we're turning to an Icon series on Studio 360's hometown, New York City, for a new batch of stories about New York icons. But we need your help. And it doesn't matter whether you live in the tri-state area of New York City or just visit sometimes. What are the New York works of art and objects and venues and institutions and songs that have shaped the character of the city and of American culture in general? What's your New York icon nominee? Tell us by going to studio360.org slash nyicons and submitting your idea. That's studio360.org slash nyicons. Thanks. In 2015, an autistic boy disrupted a performance on Broadway of The King and I. He was reacting loudly to a scene in which an actor playing a slave is whipped. He and his mother were asked to leave the theater. After the performance, one of the actors from the show posted a reaction to the incident on Facebook. He wrote, when did we as theater people, performers, and audience members become so concerned with our own experience that we lose compassion for others? Naturally, that Facebook post went viral. What's interesting and kind of ironic is that Broadway at the time was already working on incidents like that before that King and I episode took place, working to create ways for parents with autistic children to bring them to the theater with special autism-friendly performances. To see exactly how that works, we sent producer Jeff London to a recent performance of the Disney musical Frozen on Broadway. Two days before families even see the show, consultants from the Theater Development Fund, or TDF, meet with actors, ushers, and house managers to prepare them for a very special audience. One of the consultants is a college student named Harry Smolin. Hello, my name is Harry. I'm 20 years old and I have autism. I've been working with TDF since 2013. You might be wondering how I got the greatest job in the world. An autism therapist who's worked with me for 15 years recommended me because I love the theater and I know a lot about it, especially about Disney. Since my first Broadway show in 2006, which was Disney's Beauty and the Beast, I've seen 59 different Broadway shows, including Frozen. When I go to the theater, I like a seat on the aisle in case I need to make a speedy exit, not too close to the stage so that the orchestra will not sound too loud and stage fog will never get near me, not under or next to a speaker or an air conditioning vent, and not under the balcony overhang, which feels too close to me for me to be comfortable. And that's just the beginning. 
He tells the ushers how he feels uncomfortable if an actor comes into the audience or if a show doesn't begin on time. One of the other consultants, Becca Uray, a certified behavior analyst, explains that an autism diagnosis is on a spectrum and behaviors manifest themselves in different ways. You might see an individual who's rocking their body, moving around. Maybe someone's flapping their arms or shaking their hands or engaging in some sort of self-stimulatory behavior. This is a way that someone might make their body feel more comfortable in this environment. So it is perfectly welcomed. Welcoming audiences who aren't normally welcome in the theater is what TDF's autism-friendly performances are all about, says the nonprofit's executive director, Victoria Bailey. The program itself makes it possible for children on the spectrum to enjoy a performance at the theater, but what it's really doing is making it possible for the family to go. The focus of the program is that you go with your family. And what we realized is that for families with a a family member on the spectrum, they don't get to do what a lot of us get to do. They don't get to do this kind of outing that the rest of us may take for granted. TDF buys out an entire theater for a matinee to present these performances. They offer tickets at a discount and by now have a mailing list which has grown to 11,000 families. Thomas Schumacher, the president of Disney Theatrical, was the first Broadway producer to sign on. We're able to connect with an audience who feels that they weren't allowed to connect with it before. And this isn't about selling tickets to Disney shows, right? In fact, we charge way less. We have to pay people, but we'd certainly lose money doing one of these performances. But that's not the important part. It's not here to sell tickets. It's here to make this thing that we do and that we celebrate available. Every aspect of presenting an autism-friendly performance is carefully thought out. Lisa Carling, the director of TDF's accessibility program, says first they scout out each show for potential problems. We send consultants to take a look at the show, and they come up with suggestions. Which is where autistic college student Harry Smolin comes in. One of the things I have is with autism is hypersensitive hearing, which means I hear more volume than most people do, and I hear frequency that they don't. And when that happens, sound can be physically painful. Also, I react to strobe lights, kind of a jump kind of reaction. And so what we do when I react to those things is I put them in a set of notes that I send to TDF. Which TDF passes on to the production. In general, the sound is capped at 90 decibels, strobe lighting cues are changed, and says lead autism specialist Becca Uray. We also leave the house lights up throughout the show so that audience members can see their loved ones so that they can watch where they're going when they walk in and out and know that they don't have to stay inside. On performance day, the experience starts a full hour before curtain time. As families enter the theater, volunteers hand out little plastic snowflakes with a frozen logo emblazoned on them, giving fidgety kids something to play with. Guys, you know what would go so great with those costumes? A snowflake. Even the ticket takers are more welcoming than usual. As the performance nears, the theater is packed with families with autistic boys and girls and their neurotypical siblings. Some of them have been coming for years. We've done Lion King twice, we did Aladdin, we did Wicked. It's just so great. Carmen Mendez brought her daughter Addison to see Frozen. Addison was dressed as the character Elsa. Hello. Hi, Addison. How old are you? How old are you? I am 11. I'm 11. Who are you dressed as? Say, today I'm Elsa. Today I'm Elsa. 
Elsa. Do you know Frozen? Do you know the movie? Have you watched it? Say, say, sing Let It Go. You like Let It Go? Let It Go! It just takes away all the stress of taking her to a typical show where, you know, she might yell a little too loud or clap a little too loud or want to jump up and down and it may not be acceptable. Um, here she can be herself. I don't have to worry about it. I'm with parents and families who understand what we're going through. So it just takes a lot of the pressure off. As the show goes on, volunteers in t-shirts line the sides of the auditorium to provide any support that may be necessary. College student Neil Dargy is one of them. In most places they may get either different reactions from people, different looks, things like that, that they may feel uncomfortable with. But here, as volunteers, we try to make them feel as comfortable as possible. We always say that all behaviors are okay, we're very welcoming. I think that's our biggest role here. Other volunteers are stationed in the lobby, like Nicole Beach, who has an older brother with Asperger's. This is our activity area. It's kind of a quiet, calming, etc. area. We have some books and toys. It's just kind of a spot if it gets too loud or overwhelming or people just want to kind of get their wiggles and fidgets out, just need some space. They can come out here and relax, read a book hang out, you know, it's a little bit quieter, calmer if they need a little little break from being inside. But most of the audience stays in the theater during the show, even if they aren't exactly silent. Have a little faith. At least we know one thing. At intermission, Jelani Aladdin, the actor who plays Kristoff, the mountain man, could barely contain his enthusiasm. I don't even know what I really expected. You know, I knew it was going to be different in terms of, you know, there would be different lights, sound elements are going to be different. But I actually didn't equate to myself with the energy of what the space will feel like. It is electrifying in there. After the show, a family of four stood outside the theater taking pictures under the marquee. Parents Ron and Beth Cohen, with their daughters Julia, who's autistic and nonverbal, and Gabby, who's not on the spectrum and is extremely chatty. She loves Frozen. So do I. It was really fun. So was it fun as the whole family to be able to go to the theater together? Yeah. Yeah, even though Julia fell asleep for a lot of Act 1, it was still fun. (laughs) Though Frozen speaks to the love between two sisters, Harry Smolin says it also appeals to autistic audiences in particular. It sold out quicker than any other show we've done, and I think that speaks to how relevant it is to the autism community. I mean, in Elsa, you have a character who spent her entire childhood in isolation because of fear of what people would think of her, and they for a while are afraid of her, but they eventually learn to accept her for who she is. Don't let them in, don't let them see, be the good girl you always have to be, conceal, don't feel, don't let them know, well now they know, let it go, let it go, can't hold it back anymore, let it go. Our story was produced by Jeff London. And to get more information on the Theater Development Fund's autism-friendly performances on Broadway, go to t
pdf.org slash autism. That's it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. And our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is... Sandra Lopez-Monsalve. Our producers, last time I checked, are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. First, we'll take your top off, because you're getting your hair done tomorrow anyway. I'll, I'll help you. Don't worry. Thanks very much for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, the magic that brought us Yanni and John Tesh. I realized that if I was going to have a real full-time music career, that it was going to have to be some big event. The unlikely vehicle to start him in the 1990s. PBS Pledge Drives. What I needed was something like a PBS special to make a whole bunch of loud noise. That's next time on Studio 360.